0: Good morning. I'm George Polarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Today is All Saints Day. It's a day on which Catholics, Anglicans, and some others celebrate all the saints, known and unknown. All Saints Day has inspired us here at Cityscape to put a show together with a saint's theme. Coming up, we'll hear about efforts to have the Brooklyn-born co-founder of the Catholic worker movement declared a saint
1: was a saint, and and to try to understand this, because she had been sinful. She had made mistakes. She had experienced tremendous lows and highs in her life.
0: But first, let's learn more about the saints from a guy who knows a whole lot about them. James Martin is a Jesuit priest, editor-at-large of the Catholic magazine America, and the author of several books, including My Life with the Saints. I recently caught up with him at his office in Midtown Manhattan. What is All Saints Day?
2: Well, it is a celebration of all the saints uh, in the church, uh, mostly those who are officially canonized and have, uh, according to church doctrine, made it to heaven. How many saints are there? That's very hard to say. I've seen uh, estimates anywhere between 3,000 and 4,000, but uh, I think that's kind of underestimating. So only God knows, literally. How does one become a saint? Well, there are two ways. Uh, In the past, say, in the first 1,000 years of the church, someone was uh, sort of uh, acclaimed uh, popularly, Uh, so people would just, you know, in a sense, start calling someone a saint. You can think of someone like St. Peter, obviously. You know, there was not an official canonization process. But towards uh, around 1,000 or 1,100... Uh, The church started to take that over to uh, make sure there weren't, um, you know, any excesses uh, or problems in the canonization process. And you have an official um, sort of procedure that uh, the church goes through where you, uh, you know, look for miracles and investigate the saint's life. And then the person is officially canonized.
0: Why do you think there was a need for saints? Well, the church wanted to make sure...
2: Uh, that the uh, people who were being named were uh, worthy of what's called universal veneration. So uh, they didn't want someone in a, one particular diocese to name a saint, you know, who the church didn't feel was, uh, you know, authentic, uh, you know, or really appropriate to venerate. So they, and I think it's good to, so, to sort of exercise some, um, you know, oversight of the process.
0: So what are the primary requirements to become a saint?
2: Well, first of all, you uh, have to be dead, that's the first thing. Second of all, you have to live a life of heroic sanctity, so, you know, live a very charitable, loving Christian life, uh, you know, above and beyond uh, what the normal person does. There is a, um, what's called a cult that develops around you, kind of a local devotion um, at the local level. Uh, it starts there. The local bishop will move the case to Rome. Uh, the uh, person is then declared venerable, uh, and then at that point, uh, we start praying to the person uh, who's in heaven, praying for us, uh, asking for their intercession for a miracle. Once there's a miracle, the person is beatified or called blessed. Um, uh, Pope uh, Paul VI was just declared blessed um, recently. And then another miracle, and the person is canonized and made a saint. So, And there's a great investigation of the person's life and writings to make sure that this person is worthy of public veneration.
0: What kinds of miracles have saints performed
2: Well, it's very important to know that the saint doesn't perform the miracles. Uh, We pray to the saint in heaven for their prayers. And I always like to say it's similar to asking someone on earth, you know, to pray for us. Uh, Usually it's a a miracle from uh, some sort of uh, untreatable illness. And the Vatican's um, bar is pretty high. It has to be, the the healing has to be immediate. Uh, It has to be permanent, so you can't kind of relapse. It has to be attributable to no medical um, intervention, uh, and has to be well-documented. So their bar is super high when it comes to authenticating the miracles.
0: Has an individual ever lost their sainthood?
2: Well, uh, there's St. Christopher, uh, who was, you know, um, his. in a sense, uh, people said that he never existed, so therefore he's no longer a saint. Uh, but really, once a saint, always a saint.
0: Now, what is a patron saint?
2: A patron saint is someone uh, that in a sense represents a group of people uh, or is uh, the saint that you go to for a particular need so for example obviously saint peter is the patron of fishermen you know and fishermen and fisherwomen would feel comfortable asking for his prayers and sometimes you'll have a, a, a saint of a particular country so it's the person that um that we tend to feel comfortable going to for a particular need or for a particular group of people so he's our he's our patron in heaven
0: Now, there's pretty much a patron saint for almost everything, right? Even a patron saint of parking spaces, and that worked out for me this morning because I got one right near your office.
2: Yes, well, I'm not sure if uh, Mother Cabrini is the official patron of uh, finding a parking space, but I like the prayer, Mother Cabrini, Mother Cabrini, please find a spot for my little machini, and I think a lot of New Yorkers will appreciate the fact that um, she is a New York saint, and she helps us find parking spaces, and I always say, who knows, maybe she does.
0: How wide-ranging, though, are patron saints?
2: Well, I mean, in particular countries, they're well-known. And so in Italy, uh, you'll have, obviously, Francis of Assisi, uh, Anthony of Padua. I mean, you know, saints that are very well-known in Italy. Uh, You know, a lot of these saints have universal appeal, but for a lot of them, uh, they are, you know, sort of, focused on a particular locale, uh, and only a particular group of people would know them. But I think almost everybody in the Catholic Church feels that they have a patron saint, and really they do. I mean, their name, say, their name saint, uh, and also the person that, uh, they took their confirmation name after is sort of, you know, ipso facto their uh, patron saint.
0: That being said, is James your patron saint?
2: Yeah, I pray to James, uh, Joseph, Thomas, which is my confirmation name, Peter, which is my Jesuit vow name, and I pray to, uh, I think probably most uh, frequently, uh, Saint John the Twenty-Third, Saint Therese of Lisieux, uh, and of course the founder of the Jesuits, uh, Saint Ignatius Loyola.
0: Saint Therese of Lisieux has a very interesting history, right?
2: She does. Uh, Saint Therese uh, was a Carmelite monk uh, in the nineteenth century. In fact, I'm reading again her autobiography, "Story of a Soul," and. Uh, Her uh, spirituality is called the little way, and it's basically doing small things with great love for God and um, stresses a great deal of humility. So it's a beautiful spirituality that's very accessible for people uh, because I think everybody feels themselves, you know, at one point or another to be kind of little uh, in our lives, but but big in God's eyes.
0: I understand you also have a special relationship with St. Jude, one that goes back to your childhood. Yeah, I do. Uh, When
2: I was very young, I sent away for a statue of St. Jude uh, from the National Shrine in Baltimore, got this nine-inch plastic statue, put it on my dresser, and since he was patron of impossible causes, started to pray to him for almost everything. And uh, there he stood, uh, you know, for many years, and I prayed for, you know, to get a good SAT grade and, you know, those kinds of things, and sort of have a a warm spot on my heart for uh, St. Jude. Funny enough, I lost that statue and a few years ago went online and uh, found the exact statue again that's still being sold at the shrine and you know he hasn't changed and neither has the uh... the mold for the plastic statue
0: who would you say are among the most popular saints here in the u.s that's a great question
2: i think in the united states uh... francis of assisi is a perennial favorite uh... certainly with um... an increasing number of hispanic catholics our lady of guadalupe you know who is mary basically Thérèse of Lisieux is very popular, and of course, recently, uh, Saint John Paul II and Saint John the Twenty-third. But I'd say up there would be Francis of Assisi and Our Lady of
0: Guadalupe in the United States. Saint John the Twenty-third, of course, was a pope. Now, is that the fast track? Become a pope, become a saint?
2: Well, not exactly. I mean, there are some popes that have been kind of languishing uh, for a while, and there's also been a lot of criticism about naming too many popes. Uh, The problem for Catholics is. They feel that it's difficult to relate to the Pope, uh, you know, as a saint. So if the saint is supposed to be our patron, but also our companion, our, our kind of model, you know, it's hard to say, well, how am I supposed to pattern my life after someone who runs the Catholic Church? Uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, people have a great devotion for people like uh, John the Twenty-Third and John Paul.
0: John the Twenty-Third was quite a funny guy, too, right, in life?
2: Uh, yeah, he was. I think he's probably, uh, you know, before Pope Francis, probably the funniest of our popes uh, at one point. Someone asked him how many people work in the Vatican, and he is supposed to have said about half of them. Uh, Another time, um, someone said, uh, Holy Father, I understand that the Vatican is closed in the afternoon, you know, in in Italy, and people don't work. He said, no, no, the Vatican is closed in the afternoon. People don't work in the morning. So, you know, pretty good for a
0: pope. Are people surprised that someone like the pope could have a sense of humor like that?
2: Not anymore. Uh, Pope Francis, I think, shows people that it's uh, possible to be pope and laugh a lot and, you know, have a good time. But at the time, uh, the idea that Pope John Twenty Third would be so funny and uh, so open about it uh, was, was pretty remarkable. There's a book called The Wit and Wisdom of John XXIII that is, you know, pretty darn funny. What would you say
0: are the biggest misconceptions about saints?
2: Uh, that's a great question, that the saints were perfect. That's what you come across all the time. I could never be a saint. I'm not perfect. But they were not. They're human, uh, fully human, and um, that means they had flaws. I mean, the saints could get angry Uh, They lost their temper, Uh, they weren't always generous, Uh, and so I think when we, in a sense, idealize them and say they're perfect and literally put them up on pedestals, in a sense it uh, lets us off the hook, and we say, well, the saints are the ones that are perfect, I don't have to try to be a saint. But really, we're all called to be saints in our own lives, Uh, and as Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, said, for me to be a saint just means to be myself.
0: Now, Thomas Merton is what drew you to the saints, correct?
2: Well, that's right. Um, I was working for General Electric after graduating from the Wharton School of Business, and uh, I stumbled upon uh, Thomas Merton's seven-story mount and his autobiography, uh, and then later his other readings, and he drew me to other saints, and his great insight that being a saint means being yourself was very liberating for me, and also provided a lens through which to read some of the lives of the saints, that these are individuals, and St. Therese of Lisieux was very different from uh, John the twenty third and in fact John the twenty third said at one point in his journals uh, if saint Aloysius, Saint Aloysius Gonzaga had been as I am, he would have been holy in a different way,
0: so you know we 're not called to be you know cookie cutter versions of the saints based on their lives here on earth, who would you say you might consider the most unlikely saint
2: that 's a tough question, but I would say ironically enough saint peter uh, Saint Peter uh, traditionally seen as the first pope, uh, prince of the Apostles nonetheless denied Jesus three times. That's a pretty big sin. Uh, And yet Jesus put up with him and, you know, named him head of the church. So very unlikely disciple, very unlikely apostle, uh, very unlikely leader of the apostles, and I would say very unlikely saint. He's someone that a lot of people really feel a connection to because of his uh, obvious flaws in the Gospels. And and notice, you know, the Gospels, um, you know, clearly uh, St. Peter was a leader in the early church, and, and the Gospels keep in know these flaws of his, which makes you wonder how many flaws they kind of toned down.
0: Now, on the flip side of that, is there a saint who would have been voted most likely to become a saint?
2: Well, I would say there are a lot of saints like that. For example, St. Aloysius Gonzaga, the young Jesuit saint, was pretty much pious through his whole life. Uh, Therese of Lisieux, I think, was very devout and very pious through her whole life. And, and mo- uh, quite a few of the saints are like that, you know, from, from the get go, you know, from their birth almost, almost they, they lead an almost perfect life. But by the same token, um, you know, neither Aloysius nor Therese were perfect.
0: How many saints have a connection to New York City?
2: Quite a few. Um, so you have obviously uh, St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Uh, You have um, Kateri Tekawitha, uh, you know, she was in uh, New York State. Uh, St. Isaac Jogues, the Jesuit missionary who was killed in New York uh, York State. So uh, New York is a very sort of saint-heavy state. Uh, And then we have, um, uh, you know, some new upstate saints as well. So uh, a lot, you know, it must be something in the water.
0: You actually can go visit St. Cabrini, right? Her body is on display in Upper Manhattan. Mother
2: Cabrini is right near the cloisters, appropriately enough. Uh, and uh, not only can you visit her body, but it is out under glass for all to see in this uh, very interesting 1950s, 1960s chapel. I go up there a lot. I think it's great to have a saint so close. There aren't that many American saints, and you know we have one right in the city.
0: Who would you say is among the least known saints?
2: Someone like St. Isaac Jogues uh, and what are called the North American Martyrs, which may be familiar to uh, Fordham students and Fordham faculty because they were Jesuit martyrs, uh, are very well known in Jesuit circles. So it's Jean de Bourbeuf, uh, Isaac Jogues, uh, and a whole um, raft of um, five or six other Jesuit saints who were martyred um, during their work with the Huron peoples uh, and the Iroquois uh, in upstate New York. So very well known in um, Catholic circles, probably not that well known to the general public, though.
0: Yeah, it seems that many saints really met a very horrible fate, if you will, correct?
2: Well, uh, some of them, not all of them are martyrs, uh, but, um, you know, quite a few of the saints are martyrs, and the idea is that they they died for the faith and and paid the ultimate price, and also, uh, you know, their their lives were patterned in the closest way possible uh, to that of Jesus's.
0: Which saint is it that had her
2: eyeballs on a platter? That would be Saint Lucy. Uh, she is patron saint uh, for people with eye problems. When my sister was little, uh, she had some eye problems, and my great aunt went to Sicily, where Saint Lucy is also the patron, and made a special uh, pilgrimage to pray for my sister. And my sister's eye problems, you know, uh, were cured. So I, I kind of like Saint Lucy. But yeah, her her statue is a little off putting to a lot of people. It's not every day you see someone walking around carrying a platter with her eyeballs in it.
0: What's the story
2: with the eyeballs? I think her eyes were gouged out uh, as part of her martyrdom. Uh, She's one of the early Roman uh, martyrs, and I think that's what happened.
0: Now, there's also a saint who died by being burned on coals or something along those lines.
2: Uh, Yes, St. Lawrence, another early Roman martyr, was burned to death on a gridiron over hot coals as a a device to torture him. And uh, he is supposed to have said uh, in Latin, uh, turn me over and take a bite. I'm done on this side. So, you know, there's a saint also with a sense of humor in the, you know, in extremis, basically. Father Martin, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, and happy All Saints Day.
0: James Martin is a Jesuit priest, editor-at-large of the Catholic magazine America, and the author of several books, including My Life with the Saints. His latest book is called Jesus, a Pilgrimage. As Father Martin mentioned, at least a few saints have connections to New York, and at least one group wants to expand that list to include the Brooklyn-born founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. George Horton is the coordinator of the Dorothy Day Guild. He is with us on the phone this morning. George, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me.
1: Glad to be here.
0: So who was Dorothy Day?
1: Dorothy Day was a a woman who... uh, Came through quite a few changes in her life. She she began uh, working in in uh, for, for socialist newspapers. She was uh, uh, close to anarchism. She was involved in with the Artists Society in New York. Uh, All along, I think you can look at two strands in her life. On on the one hand, she had a deep search and yearning for God. And on the other, she had great love for for human beings. Uh, And in her early years, it took the form of concern about uh, social policy and 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 how how society worked she always had a deep feeling for people who were unemployed and poor and and she went through some tremendous changes in her life particularly the birth of her daughter and and the movement uh, into conversion to catholicism and during that period and following that, uh, she met Peter morn and they began the Catholic Worker Newspaper and the Catholic Worker Movement. And now throughout the country and in different parts of the world, there are these Catholic Worker Houses of hospitality for people. And she, she's a great model. She's a great model, model, model because she's, she's a woman. Uh, she was a single mother. Uh, she was a person who was devoted to the church wonderful model in bringing together sometimes uh, when the Church is thought to have divides between conservatives and and liberals. She, on the one hand, uh, is very concerned about a a just social order, but also a tremendous uh, devotee to the practices of the Church.
0: Now, there is a push to have Dorothy Day declared a saint, right? Right, right. What's the status of that push?
1: Well, the push is pushing. Uh, we have, you know, we, we've been working on this. We've had the Guild for a number of years now. I would say that there is a new momentum behind that. I mean, certainly we had the support of Cardinal o- O'Connor, who initiated the cause, Cardinal Egan, Card- Cardinal Dolan. I think uh, having Pope Francis kind of uh, gives an impetus, uh, a wind uh, to this uh, to this canonization effort. Uh, It's very interesting to me that Pope Benedict in his last uh, major address talked about Dorothy Day. And uh, Francis talks about a church that is poor and for the poor and and the works of mercy. And those are uh, at the heart of what uh, Dorothy Day uh, stands for. And So uh, we're we're moving. This this process takes a long time. We have uh, some wonderful resources, uh, people who care about her cause, who knew her, many who knew her on our advisory board, and we're starting to get a, a new momentum for it.
0: So when we look at the steps for canonization, where are we in those steps with Dorothy Day?
1: Well, she is a servant of God, which is the first step, which means that you can go ahead and, and begin begin the process. We're, we've, There have been a number of things done. Uh, for example, m- many of her writings are collected at, at Marquette University. That's an important thing. All her writings have to be collected. Robert Ellsberg has done books on her journals and letters. So a lot of the documents that have to be put together for her are out there and many of them are organized. What we need to do is systematically take a look at that and determine what and what we had. The other very important area, and, and we've been a little slow getting started with this, but we're getting started now, is the interviews with witnesses, people who knew her. There is a, a real formal process for how these interviews get conducted and who, who gets to be interviewed, family members, friends, people who, who, who were eyewitnesses to her work. So th- that the local phase, or the diocesan phase, is basically tied up uh, with the, with that process. And then there's the Roman phase, which we haven't gotten to yet, because we need to be taking care of the diocesan phase.
0: Now, George, didn't Dorothy Day in life say that she wouldn't want to be called a saint or be declared a saint?
1: She did say that, and, uh, and I think that's... Uh, That's been misinterpreted. Uh, First of all, she loved the saints. I mean, she had a tremendous devotion herself to the saints. And I think she said that because she didn't want people to think that her actions were out of the ordinary for Christians. For Catholics, she wanted. She believed in the uh, the holiness of, of of the Christian call. Uh, the that by our very baptism, we are called uh, to shelter people who are poor, to to make sure that uh, their needs are met, to welcome them as Christ at our door, and she had a great devotion to the saints. But I think what she didn't want people to do is say, oh, oh, well, she, that's Dorothy Day. She's a saint. She wanted us to reflect back on our own lives and say, what of this should we be doing? And I think that's a better, kind of a better way to look at it.
0: Didn't Dorothy Day have an abortion in her life? She did. Is she that did. a point of contention at all here?
1: There are many parts of Dorothy's early life that people might be critical of. Uh, I remember Cardinal O'Connor saying that she was a saint, and, and to try to understand this, because she had been sinful. She had made mistakes. She had experienced tremendous lows and highs in her life, and she had, in, in a very real sense, recovered, moved on, and found the faith. Her journey, and again, one of the, the beauties of it to me is her humanity. I mean, if you read the letters and journals, you'll see that she she loved uh, she loved Foster Bat- Um She she had great passion. Uh, she was truly human, and human in the sense of failing and and making mistakes. And she certainly would be one of the first ones to admit her mistakes. And she she had a tremendous sense of um, you know of of trying to to overcome you know what she may have done. So I, I think one of the things that she's kind of beautiful for her is that she falls and gets up and, and relies on the gospel, relies on Christ, relies on the faith in the church uh, to, to get back. George Horton George, is the coordinator so of time. the Dorothy Day George, Guild. You're welcome. More thanks.
0: information at DorothyDayGuild.org. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Today is All Saints Day, and that's inspired us to put a show together with a saint's theme. Now, if you're in the market for a statue of a particular saint, you may want to pay a visit to Original Products on Webster Avenue in the Bronx. The store has a wide range of religious statues on its shelves. I recently paid them a visit.
3: My name is Reverend Chris Ochoom. I'm a priest of Santeria, a spiritualist. I work here at OriginalBotanica.com, at Original Products here in the Bronx.
0: Now, Original Products has a wide variety of saint statues, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, we have a a large number of saint statues here that people come in here from all different faiths, uh, all different genres, um, and all different beliefs. And they come into the botanica to collect their saints and statues, you know, so they could go ahead and do what it is that they do with their belief system.
0: What are among the saint statues that you have here?
3: Well, we have different saint statues that range from St. Michael the Archangel mm-hmm. to um, St. Dolores, Virgin Mary. We have Varisha statues that are becoming very popular. We've got a number of different uh, cultural saints that are for, like, from, based from like, the African um, gods or African deities to even Greek, um, Greek gods and goddesses also.
0: Are the majority of the statues here of the Catholic tradition?
3: There's a wide selection of different um, belief systems that come in here. So the statues themselves range from Catholicism to Orisha worship to uh, Haitian voodoo and so forth.
0: The ones over here are certainly from Catholicism. We have St. Jude, we have St. Joseph.
3: Yeah, we have here a lot of Catholic statues that are range from St. Clair to the Mother of Charity uh, to St. Anthony to the Niño uh, Divino or baby Jesus. Um, We have uh, St. Jude, of course, St. Joseph. The most popular one here is St. Lazarus and St. Barbara and St. Anthony along with the Archangel St. Michael. What makes St. Lazarus one of the more popular ones? The reason St. Lazarus is pretty much the most popular saint of all is because, one, in the Bible, he's been recognized and known to be Jesus' best friend and was risen from the dead. He's also considered the the healer amongst all saints, and people go to him and praise him or honor him so they can get you know themselves healed with whatever ailment they might have going on in their life.
0: You said that St. Joseph is also pretty popular?
3: St. Joseph is pretty popular. Um, a lot of people, especially in Haitian voodoo, they'll use him. St. Joseph basically brings balance inside the home. Brings kind of like a serenity of peace inside your home. That's what they look for him for.
0: Now, what are some of the other statues that you think are pretty prominent, pretty popular?
3: Definitely, without a doubt, is St. Michael the Archangel. He's the right-hand man of God. He's the only archangel known in the, throughout all biblical texts, which include the Koran, the Kabbalah, and, of course, the Bible. Um, St. Michael the Archangel is the right hand of God, as I mentioned, and he brings about peace and um, Reverend Chris O'Chun
0: is with Original Products in Webster Avenue in the Bronx. The store is also online at OriginalBotanica.com. Finally today, our search for segments for today's Saints-themed show led us to the creator of a clothing line based here in New York City. It's called City of Saints. Christy Solomon, thanks for taking our call.
4: No problem. (laughs)
0: So your clothing line, City of Saints, how did that come about?
4: So City of Saints, it's basically inspired from my upbringing. My parents are pastors of a church. So growing up, I always had to dress, you know, in modified apparel. I always had to wear long skirts. you know, certain parts of my body. My arms had to be covered up whenever I would go to church. But I, I was always a fashionista, and, um, you know, I'm a designer for other companies, so at the time, I was trying to find ways to look fashionable, but still look modest at the same time, and I feel like, you know, there wasn't anything like that in the market, so the brand just basically identifies with me and, you know, what I represent as a Christian, and, um, you know, providing fashionable products for someone who, you know, wants to look, you know, go to a special occasion and want to look great, but they, you know, don't want to show too much.
0: So what does that inspiration look like?
4: If you look at some of the pieces on the website, um, like I have long full skirts, I have sequined pencil skirts, but like my pencil skirts are, you know, below the knee. So none of my skirts will be above the knee. None of my tops will, you know, have any cleavage showing or anything like that. So it's just basically, you know, designing beautiful pieces, but it's not overexposing certain areas of the body.
0: What about the name City of Saints?
4: So I just consider myself—I love the the name because it's basically saying that this is, you know, this girl who lives—she loves city living, but she's also, you know, a woman of faith. So, you know, she has her Christianity, but she she loves the city living, she loves fashion, she wants to look great. She just doesn't want to be in that box, you know? So that's kind of where the name City of Saints came from.
0: So you're here in New York City now, but where do you hail from originally?
4: I'm originally from Dayton, Ohio.
0: So what do your folks think about the fact that your religious upbringing inspired a clothing line?
4: They love it. They're really excited about it. You know, they love the fact that, you know, I am representing Christ and in this clothing line and what I'm doing. You know, I work for companies. I've designed for a lot of different companies. Donna Karen, Calvin Klein, Kohl's, Walmart, um, J.C. Penney, Liz Claiborne, And so I've designed for so many different companies, but... You know, when it came to me uh, starting my own line, I definitely wanted it to be something that could represent me. That's what this brand represents. Christy Solomon Christy, is so the owner time. and designer Thank of you. a clothing
0: line called City of Saints. You'll find them online at cityofsaintsnyc.com. And that's it for this week, Cityscape. If you missed an episode of the show, not to worry. You'll find past episodes in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and like us on Facebook. I'm George Bodarkey. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend.